This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Such a pleasure to talk to Uni Tarantini. Uni wrote the book, Betraying the Nobel, which she's been on the podcast before. We talked about some of the worst winners of the Nobel Peace Prize, but now we expand out and look for the five best and five worst Nobel Prize winners in any category. It's kind of like an interesting walk through history, both good and bad, of the past 150 years since the Nobel Prize started. So with every area of life, it's hard to compare the greatest players now with the greatest players a generation ago. If they were to both play right now at the peak of their skills, the generation ago would always lose. But you have to wonder mm-hmm. if the if if a generation like if Arthur Ashe from the '60s had learned tennis now, would he be anywhere near as good as the best tennis players now? I don't know. But it's the same thing with Nobel Prize winners. Like the amount of yeah. physics that Albert Einstein knows is actually trivially small compared to the average graduate student at any university in the world. So it's hard to compare them at their peak. But of course, if Albert Einstein was in graduate school now, what would he discover? It would be maybe amazing. We don't know. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point, actually. So I'm super excited today. We're going to talk about the five best Nobel Prize winners and the five worst. And I'm curious what you come up with. We've talked about Peace Prize winners in the past, and that's certainly going to be reflected on on this list. But let me ask you a question, Uni. If you think about the five Mm -hmm. worst Nobel Prize winners, the main Mm -hmm. ones that come Mm -hmm. up for worst are always going to be, are almost always going to be Nobel Peace Prize winners. I agree. Absolutely. Also for me, because I know more about the Peace Prize than the other uh, prizes, but also because peace is such a potentially polarizing or political issue, right? So that's when we get the warriors and the the people who have done terrible things. And it seems like also peace, as opposed to physics, is easier to understand. So I say I say physics because yeah. that's almost the most extreme science yeah. and, and peace is almost the most ex- extreme on the social side. But like, like I understand, if you put someone in front of me, I understand if they did peaceful stuff or warlike stuff. But physics, if you put a physicist in front of me, I just have to take someone's word for it that what they're doing is exactly. groundbreaking. Yep. Yep. And so maybe the Nobel Peace Prize committee Feel, and you've mentioned this in your book, of course, feels like they could influence events more by picking a winner. As opposed to physics, they probably just want to pick the best person and not try to influence things. Yeah, exactly. And also, it's it's interesting how anyone can have an opinion about the Peace Prize winner, as you said, right? Whereas, you know, for the, the committee, uh, the chemistry or, or, or in medicine, right? There you have a specialized committee with people who are, who are actual scientists or doctors, right? I guess the best you could do with something like physics is to say, okay, somebody's uh, you know discovery or invention or whatever has affected life in the years after, or it didn't. Like I could argue yeah. that some of the Nobel Prize winners in physics or economics or chemistry didn't real their discoveries weren't as important as people thought. That's how you judge those guys. But yeah. peace, you could yeah. take a look at a woman from Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi. Aung San Suu Kyi. I guess when they gave her the prize, they didn't know she was going to be this genocidal, you know, leader, you know, 15 years later, 10 years later. Absolutely. And when we have to keep in mind with her, you know, although I think, you know, she should definitely, they should definitely revoke the prize to her. Right. But she was uh, a worthy winner when she did receive it back in, I think it was in 1991. So, um, you know, it's a long time ago. And she was um, someone who was fighting for democracy through peaceful means and, and had all said all the right things and did all the right things. So she, she was, she was a worthy winner back then. Yeah, I, was she more worthy than others back then? Yeah, good question. Yeah, well, that's a good, that's a great question. Of course, there have been worthy winners that never received the the Peace Prize, right? So it's a good question. Like, who do you think, like, I'll start it off with what I think is maybe not the worst winner, Nobel Prize winner, but the, maybe the worst decision by the Nobel Peace Prize, yeah. which was, and, and, you know, not including 
Gandhi in 1948. He was still alive. They could have chosen him. I believe, yep. I, I believe he was still alive. And he had kind of created the whole philosophy of having a revolutionary movement without any violence at all. And mm-hmm. he, you know, took over India. Like he beat the British army and took over all of India. It's like this amazing accomplishment. Now he's had his faults and, you know, Pakistan and Bangladesh, sure. all everything fell apart a little bit. But yeah. He arguably could have been included, not just for what he did, but for the effect he had on like Martin Luther King and and other leaders later on. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think they didn't include him? I think possibly there there was a political uh, element in that because Norway has always been close with the United Kingdom and the British and the British were important for the Norwegians uh before World War II, but also especially after it was an important ally. And uh, you know, pretty much they they were housing, they they saved the Norwegian royal family during the war and let them stay in 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 the UK, partly, you know, some of them stayed in the US as well. But it's it's an important ally for Norway politically and historically. So maybe they didn't want to offend uh, the British. Uh, it's possible. Yeah, see, when it gets political like that, and it's only with the Peace Prize it gets political, maybe literature yeah. as well. I don't know. A little bit in the literature, but but less, of course, because, because again, with literature, a lot of people don't read, right? Or they're not, they don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> but with the Peace Prize, you know, anyone in the world can have an opinion. So, so okay, who do you think is, out of all the categories, who do you think is the... the Nobel Prize winner, I don't know, let's say is the best is a, almost like a childish word, but let's just say best. You know, it was really, it's, it was easier for me to pick the worst ones than the, than the best ones, right? But if I were to- That's the problem. Exactly, yeah. But I thought about it. And my number one is Karl von Ossietsky. He won the Peace Prize in 1936. Oh, wait, I'm going to look it up. How do you spell his last name? So Ossietsky, that's O-S-S-I-E-T-Z-K-Y. Wow. He was a German journalist, and and he was a prisoner of the Nazis. And he he was, he was, it was such a courageous man, and that's why I, uh, I really, I think he was such a worthy winner back in 36. He was the one, he was, he was probably the, probably the only one who alerted the world to the fact that uh, Germany was secretly rearming itself, and which was in violation, violation of the, uh, the Versailles Treaty and Germany's own laws. And because he did that, because he was a journalist and he wrote about it and he published and he, he told the world about this. And because of this, he was sent to prison and concentration camps. And the fact that he received the Nobel Peace Prize was actually quite risky. Uh, it was a risky move of the Nobel Peace Prize committee because Norway was was had, hadn't been um, invaded yet by Germany, but there was a threat, right, that they would invade Norway. And so a lot of Norwegians didn't want uh, Ossietsky to win the prize because they said, we don't want to provoke Germany and Hitler. And and who knows, right, if the prize actually provoked, you know, if that was part of the reason why Germany did invade Norway in 1939. But he, um, he did receive it. And that was a really courageous prize. And contrary to, to what the committee has has done so many other times when they haven't showed courage, right? Like when they didn't want to go against the British and uh, and give the prize to to Gandhi. So it's interesting. During the year 1935, he did not win the Nobel Prize. In fact, um, I'm reading here that the Nobel Committee didn't give the Nobel Peace Prize to anybody in 1935. They, they kind of stated that nobody yep. fit the criteria. They waited until 1936 to give it to him. And I wonder yeah. if that's because he was on the, the eve of his death, basically, when they gave it to him. And, and it says here, two, two members of the prize committee- Resigned. Resigned, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was, this is a really interesting, it's, a, it's historically interesting this year, uh, 35, 36 uh, of the Nobel Peace Prize uh, as an institution, because until uh, that year, you could be an active politician 
sitting on the government and also be part of the of the committee of the Nobel Peace Prize committee. So the one of the people who resigned was the foreign minister. And mm. then the and there was a former prime minister who also resigned. And they did it to create a distance between the committee and the Norwegian government. So in an attempt to appease the Germans, right? So after that, they decided that you cannot be on the committee if you are an active politician. But what has happened is that they elect these former politicians that, you know, so you have these all these political veterans on the committee. And so what were they thinking when they were, were they worried? Well, first off, how do you say his name? Osietsky? Osietsky, yeah. He was basically on the left. And as you said, they were, they were conservative politicians. So they might've disagreed with him on that. But I guess, like you said, they were probably nervous about the effect this would have on Hitler. Like apparently the German press wouldn't mention it at all that he won because he had already been arrested by them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was it was very controversial. It's also interesting that even though he was on the left, he didn't support the Socialist Party in Germany, which eventually became the National Socialist Party, which was the Nazi yeah. Party. So yeah. he, he had a lot of foresight in... Uh, you know, seeing what was there to come. It's almost like completely on the opposite spectrum. And by the way, this is a, what I'm about to say is a criticism of the, of the Peace Prize Committee and not of the person who won. But Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize in what, 2007, before he had even done anything. And even he admitted, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even he admitted he hadn't done anything yet. And, but they wanted to kind of influence events rather than, you know, compared to someone who wanted for extreme courage and, Mm -hmm. you know, he was willing to be arrested, risked his life, you know, it kind of went all the way, you know, almost, you know, 50 years, 70 years later, went completely in the other direction. Yeah, for sure. And what's interesting about the 2009 prize to to Obama is that it wasn't, well, for sure, they wanted to influence and encourage him to go, to continue in a certain direction, right? Um, but also, it was that price was also um, a slap in the face to the the Bush administration that you know that was the previous administration from Obama. So it wasn't all it wasn't only a price to award Obama. It was um, the last price in a in a in a in a of numerous prices that were given as a slap in the face to the Bush administration in the U.S. Well, I don't know. I don't know if Obama, <laughs> if that's his proudest moment or not, but it was definitely a, a weird thing for the Peace Prize. And you pointed this out in your great book, Portraying the Nobel, The Secrets and Corruption Behind the Nobel Peace Prize by Uni Turatini. I do have one worst Nobel Prize that it isn't a Peace Prize. I have at least at least one. And so okay. it's it's the guy who invented the frontal lobotomy won the Nobel Peace Prize in physiology or medicine, uh, oh, yeah. Antonio Igas Moniz. And yeah. we didn't really know then the effect that lobotomies would have on people. But, you know, when someone has a lobotomy, they essentially lose, you know, their personality. They lose, they, they lose all their mental faculties. It's not, he thought it was a great, he, he to, to his credit, he thought it was a, a great way to help people with severe mental illness, but it ended up being misused. People would send their, you know, misbehaving children to get lobotomies. Uh, you know, notably one of the one of John F. Kennedy's sisters had had what was believed to be a lobotomy when her family mm. couldn't handle her anymore. And so I think I think it was a very uh, it's caused a lot of harm to society yeah. in general. I think there's all the. In the, in the U.S. alone, there's been over 20,000 lobotomies performed, and we knew from the beginning there were serious side effects, but mm. uh, it was definitely not necessarily worthy of the Nobel Prize for Medicine in, in 1949. Yeah, no, absolutely. That is a horrific one. That's a, that's a really good one to bring up. Look, obviously, there are problems it solves, but it's like saying killing someone could stop their behavioral disorder. So... It's not Absolutely. necessarily the best, the best thing. <laughs> well, what's, what's another good one? Oh, so for me, actually, this year's prize, the, the 2021 Peace Prize to Maria Ressa and Dimitri Murato. That's actually, this is actually one of my favorite, all-time favorite wow. Peace Prizes. Maybe, yeah. maybe they read yeah. your book and said, we better put up some good winners. 
Yeah. <laughs> so these, you know, so so the reason why I really like this year's prize, it's that, you know, they, they well, Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov are um, journalists, investigative journalists, Maria Ressa from the Philippines uh, and Dmitry Murato, he is from Russia. And they both risk their lives to report the truth and to report the news, right? And, you know, and we know, and we also know that Maria Ressa has been threatened on national television by the, the president in, in the Philippines. She's, he said that he's going to kill her. So on, on television, on national television. So it's, it's really, wow, so you know, she was she, a citizen of the Philippines. Was she living in the Philippines yeah, at the time? She's still, she's still living there. Yeah. And he said he was going to kill her. Well, she wasn't in jail or anything at that time. No, absolutely. Now they're they're threatening of putting her in jail for other reasons, you know, for you know conspiracy, all sorts of things. Um, so that you know, who, who knows what's going to happen? But hopefully, the peace prize will save her in the sense that they won't try to kill her or put her in prison. But we'll so, see. So, so let me ask you a question: If you yeah. had the opportunity to be like Maria Ressa and mm-hmm. state something that you felt was really important against society, knowing that you could be put in jail. And let's say, I don't know if she has a family or whatever, but would would you do it? I don't know if I would do it. I don't know if I'd want my freedom taken away for writing something that probably won't have any effect. I know. And it's, and it's, that's why I think it's so extremely courageous because I don't know if I would have the courage to do that. So I think it's, but I think it's, it's, you know, even more important that, they do reward people who are that courageous, that shows that they are willing to actually sacrifice their own lives to, to protect our uh, freedom of expression and also our, our right, our general, you know, everybody's right to information. And I think it's, it's important. And especially, you know, even just think about this whole polarizing um, vaccination policy, the conversation, right. And how, and, and, like I don't know about you, but I I'm not against, let's say the the, the vaccination, you know of, of you know during this pandemic. I'm not at all against it. But what I am, you know, what I'm reacting to is the lack of of uh, tolerance for the opposition. Is that you know why are we not inviting people who are skeptical and people who have questions to the table? for a conversation because there are different sides to it, right? So that's what I'm reacting to. And I think that's what this, the, the Peace Prize to Ressa and Murato is, is in a way that it's a shout out to our right to information and our freedom of expression. So I think, I think today it's even more relevant. I don't think that the committee though had this in mind. This is just my interpretation, but I take it as a really positive sign. And, and uh, you know, because our democracy, the way I see it is under attack, and not just by, you know, dictators, but by governments and media everywhere. Right, and you make a great point that by the way, you should write an article on this. You should you should write yeah. uh, an article on what we could learn from this year's Nobel Peace Prize winners because for two reasons. One is yeah. I didn't even know who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2021. Like I feel like it's just not right. it just doesn't get out there anymore. And yeah. the yeah. other thing is is that you're right. I feel like in the past 3 or 4 years, maybe less, maybe more, you really there, there's always been people who disagree and who hate each other for mm-hmm. disagreeing. But now, mm-hmm. uh, in particular, uh, like take the take the vaccine thing you mentioned. So yeah. I legitimately am curious whether if you had COVID, what kind of immunity you get versus the vaccine. Right. And yeah. and also, and this is not an, an anti-vax stance. I just want to know the numbers because right. I, I've had COVID less than six months ago, and I legitimately yeah. want to know if I should get vaccinated now. And on the podcast a few weeks ago, we had a woman who's who, who was vaccinated, who is a doctor and a Harvard researcher and wrote a book about COVID. And she told me it would be useless for me right now. I should wait a few more months. And yet, but that huh. means I can't go, like in other, in cities like New York City, I can't go into a restaurant because you need a vaccine card. And right. so I'm just curious when, and then the other thing I'm curious about is 
can you, what are the statistics on transmitting the disease once you've been vaccinated? Because apparently it doesn't stop the disease so you could still transmit it. So then I wonder what the, is that normal for vaccines? Or I just want to know answers to a bunch of questions and you really can't, like if I were to ask them on Twitter, I am in danger of having my account banned on, let's say any social media, not just Twitter, Facebook, Twitter. And and meanwhile, I've gotten death threats on Twitter and I've reported them and Hmm. I get back a message saying, oh no, this person did not violate our, our policies. So I get, I get disturbed about, it seems like there's a hypocrisy when I have legit questions, like I'm going to get vaccinated, but I have legit questions about health related to it, particularly since I've had it already. So, yeah. And these are great questions. And I'm, I'm actually in the same situation as you, because I had COVID before uh, I got vaccinated too. And I'm also, you know, asking myself those very same questions. And and I'm not like I'm. I don't consider myself an anti anti vaxxer or whatever they they call it, right? And I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist either or an extremist. But I do have questions, and I think it's it would be interesting to invite the other side to the table to the conversation. And I don't understand why it's dangerous, why it's a threat to allow different viewpoints to come to to light. The only places in the world up until now where we were not allowed to have an opposition are in in uh, in in uh, dictatorships, right? In totalitarian states like Russia and and other places. Well, now it seems like we are really getting close to becoming totalitarian when it comes to to this conversation in our parts of the world too. And that really frightens me. So this is why also I think that this year's prize is even more important. And you're right, I'm going to write an article about that. That's really uh, a good point. Yeah, because it sort of shows that alongside the arguments you made in your book, there's an argument to be made that, look, we need to still pay attention to what's happening here. And this is a very prestigious prize still. And it is clear for better or for worse that they send messages by who they pick and in this case, it happens to be a message we should listen to. Exactly. Because what, what happens also when you when you cut people out and you exclude them and you shame them for their opinions, uh, what happens is that you drive them toward conspiracy theorists. You drive them to you know toward more extreme ideas and, and polarization. And that creates conflict, that creates you know, riots, demonstrations, protests, and potential uh, violence, right? So the opposite of peace. Yeah. So, okay, I agree with you on that, that this is a, a good one, the 2021 prize. Yeah. So I, I'm going to go outside of the peace prize for, for a good one. I do think my number one for a good pick is Watson and Crick for the discovery of the shape of DNA of the DNA module. So Francis Crick and James Watson. Mm -hmm. uh, And, uh, you know, the idea being that over the next, because of what they started and because of now the uh, innovations in sequencing the the human genome is so cheap now that the amount of diseases that are going to be cured, we can't even imagine. Like right now we cured diseases by whether it's chemotherapy or complicated, you know, mm-hmm. cocktails of medicine, we're eventually going to be able to use gene editing similar to the Nobel Prize in, in medicine last year. I guess it was the woman who invented CRISPR, so which is sort of the the tail end of what Watson and Crick started. But this is going to change all of medicine. Like we're going to basically be able to cure almost all diseases eventually because of our understanding of DNA, which they kicked off. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a good one. So that's like really basically one. curing all disease has to be up there. For sure, especially now, right? <laughs> I, I didn't know why. So it, they specifically won it for, um, because they discovered what the shape of the DNA was. It was a double helix. Yep. And I didn't know why it's important, the shape, but I guess it could lead, it, 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 you know, it helps, it's helpful to know what the shape is because that's how it attaches to uh, proteins in and cells in the body, and how it does its magic, how it changes your your body by uh, because of the shape, and also I guess it helps with with sequencing the the genome. Hmm. So yeah, 
And then for another, for a good one, I, I kept debating whether Marie Curie was a good yeah. one or not. Because, okay, she discovered radioactivity, which she and her husband Pierre discovered radioactivity, which you can argue was going to be discovered anyway, sooner or later. And there was some risk to it. You know, she ended up dying from the radioact- the radioactive exposure because she got exposed to radioactivity so much, but she never admitted yeah. that she died from it. She also won two Nobel Prizes, one in physics and one in chemistry. Yeah. And yeah. I think her, her daughter won the prize, her husband won the prize. Like this is like the 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 biggest yeah. family in the no, in the Nobel Prize history. So yeah. arguably she's very, very important. But again, I always wonder about prizes where it probably would have been discovered anyway. And yeah. you know. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. But clearly she did it at, at great personal risk and it, it did change the entire field of physics. Yes, and I think I think for, for me anyway with her is that the fact that she, you know, she was a woman and it took, she probably should have won the prize for, before, right? And they waited to give it in the first one they gave it, she had to share it with another man. And so they have been, you know, because of the fact that she was a woman, they they hesitated to give her the price. And I think that's makes her, I think, for sure, worthy of the price, probably more than a lot of other people. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. That uh, I don't know how many women were chosen before her, but she definitely like changed the scope of science. And, you know, as, as a woman showed that, hey, I mean, she's still quoted as like a woman who was successful in the in the sciences and, and is an inspiration to to young girls who who yeah. want to go into science and, and so on. And you know, I, I do wonder what benefits they immediately thought were going to happen from radiation. But clearly, the you know, the, just the fact that it, it uh, emits light, emits particles. Uh, you know, there was a sense that this would be a way to create energy even right from the very beginning. And of course, then that leads to another, what I think is a controversial pick, but maybe many people would argue it's not so controversial. I always wonder, why did Einstein win the Nobel Prize? Like who actually understood what he was doing? And I never I never yeah. quite figured out why he won it. And also, didn't he win? I believe he won for, you know, the, the, the reasoning for picking Einstein also. He, he won it in the, 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 piece, the, the prize in physics in 1921, but um, the citation, they didn't mention anything uh, about the, the theory of relativity, and they just spoke very vaguely about some unspecified services to theoretical physics. So it was really it was really a strange price. Yeah, I think he didn't win for that. He he well, again, I don't think you win for something, right? You win for a lifetime of work, but I think uh you know, they they stated in his in when he won that he, for his services to theoretical physics and especially for his discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect. So the idea that yeah. that yeah. atoms when they're bombarded with light can also emit light back. So, you know, yeah. which kind of led to, yeah. you know, also nuclear power and, and, and all that. It's related to Marie Curie's prize. And, but I think that with the theory of relativity, I don't know what you, I don't really know what you use with that. Particularly like he was awarded in 1921, yeah. there wasn't a sense of like nuclear <laughs> weapons, which yeah. was kind of the first yeah. mega use of uh, the, the theory of relativity. The fact that so much energy yeah. could be created with so little matter. And yeah. so, yeah, I don't, I think... He, you know, he had his 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 look and his appearance, which makes him look like the smartest person ever. But I, I never really that clear like why he won. Although he was considered kind of the smartest person around then, so yeah, I think it was just like they figured, well, why not give it to him? He's clearly a smart guy, and he did something. So, but you know, again though, um, let's take another good one from medicine where I think the effects were immediate, the, the benefits of what this person invented were immediate, which is Alexander yeah. Fleming, who discovered that this fungus that grew in his lab was an antibiotic, a very powerful antibiotic, which he named penicillin. And of course, penicillin mm. cures every, almost every type of infection you could have. Oh yeah. That's a really good one. Yeah. That's a really good one. Yeah. And that's one of those, it's a great one to study because it's one of those ones where he was researching Anti antibiotics, and he was in, researching bacteria and how to kill it. 
and then he went on vacation. And when he get, got back, he realized he had left some of these Petri dishes exposed and mm-hmm. fungus grew on them. Like, uh, and, and that, in fact, uh, you know, it was that accidental discovery that created penicillin ultimately, which, you know, to some extent, we still use descendants of penicillin. Like it's his med- his, his cure is still is still around. Still around and still yeah, absolutely. That's a really good one. And and imagine how many lives that has saved, right? Like how that's that's really changed humanity. Yeah. So yeah. Whereas Einstein, yeah, eventually it changed humanity. Yeah. But I'm I'm just always unclear what you know how you know did he realize back then it would change humanity? I mean, it was theoretical physics. That's why like, you know, Werner Heisenberg also, who who received the uh, Nobel Prize in physics for um, essentially discovering uh, quantum mechanics. I always wonder like, what what use is quantum mechanics? I mean, I'm sure physicists mm-hmm. would be horrified at me saying this, but uh, <laughs> at the time it was just really theoretical. So I, I'm, I'm not sure you can just give, give it to somebody who just seems really smart. I'd rather it be given to somebody who it has an effect on on society almost immediately. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, you know this reminds me though that the 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 in medicine there's I don't know much about it but I read that in, in 1923 they gave the prize to Sir Frederick Banting for the discovery of insulin, right, which is super important and still, you know, in use today and very much saving lives. Um but that year, they he Banting had to share the prize with this other guy called McLeod, and nobody knows what McLeod really did because he didn't, you know, he didn't participate in the discovery of insulin. So what what I read anyway was that McLeod's only contribution was that he provided a, a laboratory space. And he gave some general business advice to Sir Frederick Banting. So that's also like kind of a curious um, that they would, you know, he would he would receive the 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 Nobel Prize well, in medicine. Well, you know, that's an interesting point too. That how much is the people who let's say maybe they're not scientists or inventors, yeah. but they fund yeah. and enable the guys who yeah. like like for instance uh, Pierre Amadjar, who started, you know. He, he started eBay and now he gives like billions of dollars to charity. He funds a lot of science that has resulted in no, the Nobel Prize. Uh, do we ever give it to someone like that who's yeah. an enabler? That's a good point, actually. Maybe he, sh- maybe he did deserve it, right? So that's, yeah, that's a good point. I haven't oh, thought no, about that. No, actually, Maria Ressa, Amadjar helped fund her. Oh, yes. really? So he's definitely a good guy then. <laughs> It's interesting because it's very hard to be, like you were just pointing out, it's very hard to be an activist because of the of mm-hmm. the personal risk. So I was just at this conference. Yeah. It was a, a, a human rights conference. The, um, gosh, I forget the name of the conference now. Uh, the Oslo Freedom Forum started in Oslo right near you. And- Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And um, it's interesting. There were a lot of activists speaking and I had a chance a little bit to speak with the head of the Freedom Foundation- and they have to be very careful when an activist approaches them because they want to make sure a he's a he or she is a real activist uh, and not yeah. somebody put up there by the government. And they also want to make sure right. that psychologically the activist could handle what's going to happen because you know their family could be harassed, they could be harassed, they could be put in jail, they could be killed, people they know they could be killed. Yeah. So psychologically, yeah. you have to really be, you know, a strong character. And, and and again, I don't know if I would be that strong. And then also there's a skill to activism, particularly in a country that locks down all human rights. Like you have to know how to, essentially activism is a form of performance art. Like you have to know how to, yeah. you know, create attention when no attention is allowed. Yes. So this conference was all, a lot of it was about how they teach activists, how to, they basically train activists to do what they do, like what what does it mean to be an activist? What is activism in, yeah. in a country that you know suppresses all human rights? So it's yeah. it's interesting. But these enablers, you know, like Omidyar or this free, you know Oslo Freedom Organization, they're very crucial to the process. Or like this guy Banting who helped fund a scientific process. Absolutely. What's another uh, good one? 
So let's look at, like, well, my, I think my number three, and this goes back to the Peace Prize of 1905 that went to Bertha von Suttner. And the reason why I like her so much, first of all, she was the first woman to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. And she is the inspiration for Alfred Nobel to create these prizes and to give away most of his money to all the different Nobel Prizes in the first place. So that's why I think she has a crucial role and is a worthy winner. Now, she was um, one of the first really leaders in the peace movement back in her time. And you can say that, you know, you can argue that she wasn't successful because, you know, afterwards we had World War One and World War Two and all of that. But I do think that her work and all the peace activists, their work is still important, even if they they weren't uh, per se successful, right? That they managed to create peace. And I don't think we're going to see anyone uh, in the next, I don't know, foreseeable future that will actually manage to create world peace, right? But I think I still think we have to reward the people who are activists and are trying. And she definitely did a lot for the peace movement. So, and she had a lot of courage too. I like people who have courage. Well, it's a good, <laughs> it's a good question actually. Like who, you know, what is world peace? Does that mean there's no yeah. suppression of human rights anywhere? Or does that mean there's no, yeah. like if, if, there, if, there were, if no leader was corrupt and no leader suppressed human rights, I guess you could mm-hmm. argue we would have no war. Because, you know, for instance, mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm just trying to think of a, a, a common example. Like, uh, you know, Iraq invaded Kuwait in the early 90s because he already was used to suppressing human rights. So why not invade another country? Yep. I'm not saying that yep. was his argument, but, uh, you know, I guess... I guess with world peace, you could say, and and again, there's always that expression, countries should either trade bullets or money. So, you know, bullets are goods. And so I guess as countries get more and more economically developed, that might be the fastest way to have world peace. Absolutely. I think, think, you know, the foundations for for conflict are, you know, suppression, uh, violence, uh, uh, you know, violating human rights, and and poverty, right? If people are poor, uh, they will they will riot eventually. They will stand up. Th- that's true. So, Although in general, the world has become yeah. less poor. Like as yep. as technology creates, you know. And I know some people are against like you know genetically modified foods, like GMO foods. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, ultimately they feed an extra billion or two people. And there's various technologies yeah. like that that have fed more and more people. So yeah, um, I wonder if there's any peace activists that actually really move the needle more than simply economic development. Yeah, yeah, I, you know it's it's a great question, and and someone that they did give the peace prize to was Muhammad Yunus, who sort of I don't know if he invented uh, micro micro loans, but you know that was his you know he's he's that's what he's known for. Um, giving these small, you know, micro loans to poor people um, in Bangladesh. And he won the Peace Prize in 2006. Now, um, you know, back then a lot of people were, and celebrities were were rooting for, for Muhammad Yunus that, you know, he, gave, he, he did so much for poor people. Now, I not, like for me, that is not, on, he's not on my list of, of, of worthy winners. He is on my list of the worst winners, actually. Yeah, yeah, because isn't there a lot of evidence? I think we talked about this even before yeah, on the last did. one. Yeah, we did. There, there, yeah, there, exactly. there was a lot of evidence that this micro-lending has caused problems. Yeah. Maybe, what, what, what were those problems? So what has happened is that poor people take up these micro-loans from his bank and other similar banks, right? But because the, the interest rates are so high, they can't repay the loans, so they're forced to turn to loan sharks and 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 other you know terrible people, and that um, that has resulted in in suicide epidemics in in certain regions. So it's it's actually more evidence to to that shows that he's increased poverty and um, and 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 made you know the situation worse than it was before. And that they also with these microloans a lot of the, the times they 
also, in order to get the loan, they have to sign up to to get a mobile phone and and so they have a subscription you know all, all that stuff that they don't necessarily need why did right? they, oh they had to get a, a phone because uh it was transferred to them they, they used the technology of the phone to transfer money to them or not not necessarily no no actually not because they, these people you know they were they were just given the money they went to the to the bank and they got the the cash right so that's what happened mm -hmm. but because you know they're trying to force these poor people, already poor people, to to become consumers. Uh, yeah. You know, to buy all these different products like phones and other and other products and insurances and all sorts of things um, that they can't really pay for. So they have to 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 loan more money to borrow more money in order to pay for all these consumer goods that they you know are forced to take. So let's say let's say you were Muhammad Yunus back then when he started microlending. Yeah. The I guess. The way to do it is is oddly how Michael Milken uh, discovered that junk bonds were interesting investments. He basically looks yeah. statistically at really low rated loans made to made to mostly shitty corporations, and mm -hmm. he determined that more often than expected, they paid back the loan. And so these you know C or D rated loans were called junk bonds because they were considered so junky that you make a high return, but there's a risk of going bankrupt. And they, and, but he model, his model of bankruptcy, he showed that they didn't go bankrupt as much as people thought. So it created, it became an important asset category, junk bonds. And so I wonder if yeah. Mohammed Yunus did a similar kind of statistical study where, where he showed that if you lend these people in these struggling countries, these microloans to build businesses and, and so on, if they would pay them back more likely than not. Like, I wonder if he did a statistical study or if it was, it, it's one thing if it's just good intentions. It's one, it's another thing if it's good intentions combined with, hey, it turns out this is a valuable investment category. And while that sounds almost too uh, materialistic to look at it that way, that really is how it becomes the most effective. If, yeah, if people absolutely. have economic incentive to do microloans, yeah. then it then then he's done. He he did his job. He doesn't have to like um do you know encourage something that when you encourage something that doesn't have economic incentive, eventually it comes back to bite you as it happened here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I wonder exactly. if he did well, the I do, research. Yeah. I well, he probably did the research and also the way that these microloans were constructed because they didn't have any collateral, any material collateral for the banks to have a guarantee. So what they did was that they grouped, you know, these neighbors and people together. So a group of women, for example, which, which you know, he's, he's famous for trying to help poor women to rise up and, and, and create businesses with these microloans. But what happened was these groups of women, so they were put together in a group. And then what happens is that if one of the women defaults, so she can't pay the interest that week, the other women have to pay for her. Mm. And that, of course, they're all struggling and none of them can, you know, they're all struggling to just make it their own little part, right? So if they have to take on another person's part, so that created a lot of, you know, they, you know, they, you know, beat each other up. There were exclusions, you know, it was such a shameful, uh, shameful, to not be able to pay your part because you were then shamed and excluded from your community, right? Because of, you know, the other people were then hurting in the group. So you had the group as collateral. And I think that just creates a, 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 a really unhealthy environment for everyone, apart from the bank, because they were the ones always getting their money or almost always getting their money. Often good intentions have horrible consequences. Yeah. And uh, one example yeah. in the United States is during the 90s, the Clinton administration created, I'm, I'm gonna simplify it, but created kind of a quota for banks to make subprime loans so more people could borrow money yeah. to own houses. Forgetting the fact that until now, we've had pretty low inflation since the 90s and it was unclear you really needed to own a home to be happy, for instance. But the creation of subprime loans created this whole asset class that wasn't really statistically valid, as it turns out in the 2008 financial crisis. Like people defaulted more than was thought, and you know, entire banks went out of business trying to collect these loans. So again, there was great intentions, but had horrible 
consequences. And yeah. you, you have to wonder this with, with every major decision. Like we still don't know mm-hmm. the effects of the economic lockdowns, for instance, in this last year. Like how many yeah. people had medical problems because yeah. they were, and how many people committed suicide, how many people mm-hmm. you know, lost their livelihoods and their families' livelihoods, and that creates medical issues. So we, we'll, we'll never know the full effects of that, but it was a good intention, which is less people get COVID. So we just don't know the, the answer. Exactly, yep. Here's another one of omission. This is related to one of our, our worst ones. So how do you say the name of the Myanmar woman again? Aung San Suu Kyi. Yeah, so she she won in 1991. Obviously, she had spent yeah. decades in prison. There was another person who was actually offered the prize in 1991 before her, which was Vaclav Havel, former Czech oh, president. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he never admitted that, actually, but she said it, that she was called and told that he had been offered it and that he re- refused it. I don't know why he refused it. And she was offered it instead. And she said that he was such a source of inspiration for her when she was in prison. And obviously, this is a Peace Prize winner who did have an effect on the world. Like, he, he you know, wrote for years, uh, you know, he was, in, he was in the Czechoslovakia, which was communist. He wrote for years against communism and and kind of the fascist tendencies of communism. He went to mm-hmm. prison for it. And then he negotiated the change of power in, in uh, I guess it was like 1990, 1989 or 1990. And he became president of the Czech Republic. This this playwright uh, became the president of the Czech Republic and seems to have been a good leader. There's not, I don't know of anybody yeah. who says anything really bad about him, but no. he, was, he was apparently mm-hmm. offered the prize. I don't know why he re- refused it though. It, that's you know it's something that's something that I haven't heard of, and I only know of one person who actually refused the prize. Well, you know we we don't know this because because of course you know the records of anything is held secret, right? So maybe they did offer it to him, and it's just not public information. But this was a leak, maybe. But what the only person that I know of that refused the prize was the leader of North Vietnam who won the prize together with Henry Kissinger. Oh uh, yeah, for the Paris Peace Accords. Exactly, that, end, that ended the, the Vietnam War. And of course, that one was a horrible prize because there was no peace in Vietnam. And the U- United States you know, was carpet bombing Vietnam and Cambodia and that region while they were handed the medal. And I, I forget, what didn't he say something like, I'm not gonna accept it because there is no peace yet? Like I'm not gonna yeah, exce- exactly. I'm not gonna accept it until there's actual peace. Yeah. And then the committee responded with, well, we're not gonna accept that you reject the price. So we're still gonna give it to you. You're still on the record officially as a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And you know, he just chose not to pick up his medal or the money, right? But he's still on the record as an official Peace Prize winner. That's, that's so interesting. And meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, like I guess. Plenty of people who were kind of ambivalent about the prize, the Nobel Prize, could have rejected it. So, so Obama was ambivalent about it. Bob Dylan, yeah. I don't think Bob Dylan even showed up for, you know, he won the Nobel Prize in literature. I don't think he even showed up in Sweden to collect it. And so plenty of people haven't cared, but they still, I guess, took the check and, or at least, yeah. you know, yeah. acknowledged taking the prize. I think even yeah. Bob Dylan eventually said, yeah, he's, he's, he won it. You know, in the end, he did accept it. Like three months later uh, or something. They, first of all, they couldn't get a hold of him, you know, to, to tell him that he won. And then he responded three months later that he accepted it. And then he had to, in order to receive the money and the medal, he had to give a, a Nobel lecture. And he had to do it within six months of the prize. And I think the cutoff date was on June 10th uh, that year. And then he gave his Nobel lecture on June 4th. So just before, you know, the cutoff date. So that was kind of funny. Did he have a good lecture? Do you know? I, you know, I read it. It it was actually, he did it at a concert, as part of a concert. And it was kind of just, it sounded like he wasn't really interested in the prize or interested in receiving it. And he didn't really understand why he got it. That's the way it sounded to me, you know, his Nobel lecture, because it wasn't really of any interest to the prize. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. So, you know, yeah. but speaking of the Nobel Prize in literature, it's hard to say who's good and who's bad because it's so subjective. Mm-hmm. And first off, there's a lot of omissions, like James Joyce, who's considered yeah. one of the best writers ever, never won it. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, I would say the best 
awarded prize was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's almost a, the, the equivalent of a Peace Prize winner. Like basically, he wrote against uh, Russian oh, yeah. authoritarianism. Yeah. He spent mm-hmm. years in Siberia. He wrote the book The Gulag Archipelago, which is like an unbelievably well written book about his experience in Siberia. And you know, and his book was kind of passed around underground and in the Soviet Union just to kind of show that there were people fighting communism. You know, that was probably a, a good use of the Nobel Prize in literature. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I agree with you also that it's really kind of difficult to know, but there's been a lot of criticism of the literature prize that, you know, like you said, a lot of people who deserved it didn't get it, you know, and they didn't give it to to Prost or or to to Joyce or, you know, there's so many people who were worthy winners. And then it seems also that sometimes there's, you know, there's politics in the literature prize as well you know, and who they give it to. There's like a like a lot of Scandinavian authors that received it that nobody's heard of and that weren't really great writers, but then they didn't give it to like the probably the two Scandinavian writers that have had the most impact. You know, Henrik Ibsen mm. is a Norwegian one who's, who's done a lot, right? And who's world famous today uh, or, or Strindberg, you know? So there's, you know, there's, there's something strange. Yeah, the, the the literature one's weird. I think it's just a matter of like yeah. who's both literary and popular. And, exactly. and there's no controversy. Exactly. So like James Joyce, I think they didn't give it to him because he had too much blasphemy. I don't know why yeah. with Ibsen. <laughs> you know, and then Ernest Hemingway got the prize. You know, regardless of what you think of his books, maybe he deserved it, but... It was definitely, he was a larger than life character. And I think that helped him as well. Like, I think personality helps you get noticed and win these sorts of prizes. Like if Malala, who I do think was very brave and deserved the Nobel Peace Prize, but she was put in the media all over the place and was very brave to do so. I mean, she got shot in the face Mm -hmm. for it, but there might've been other kids that we don't know about who have been treated far worse, who, and I'm not criticizing Malala here. Like, I think she's great. But uh, by the way, she just yeah. she just got married too, which shows us how old we were. Like she was. I saw that, yeah. and she just graduated from college too. Our, all our Nobel Prize winners are are growing up, so all the yeah, child exactly, ones. exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, but yeah, the literature one's a weird one. Like I don't know. I that's why Solzhenitsyn stands out, and someone like Hemingway, I thought about, but doesn't quite. And I and I love Hemingway's writing. I, I probably read mm-hmm. Old Man in the Sea once a year, but because uh, it's yeah. a great written book. It's such a great, yeah, it's such a great, but. Book. I don't know what it means to get the prize. There's also a lot of literature winners who I've never, who nobody's ever heard of and nobody will ever read again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I'll, I'll throw in one more science one, Herman Muller. So in the 20s, he discovered that, and this is what Marie Curie did not discover, he, he discovered that there is a link between exposure to radiation and dying from mutations in your cells. So not only did he make this scientific discovery, but because of this scientific discovery, he's been a strong advocate for not using nuclear weapons because you're going to end up killing people, many civilians. Although I have to say, though, right now what we're seeing, I don't know, I don't know if the United States, but over here in Europe anyway, there's a lot of talk about nuclear energy. Yeah. And for so many years, I mean, I remember, you know, growing up where, you know, with demonstrations and protests in the streets that we did not want nuclear energy, right? And in Norway, that's fine because we have hydroelectricity and we have so many other, you know, options, right? But, um, you know, in Switzerland, for instance, they're preparing the populations for blackouts in the next five years. They're going to, they're saying, we're going to have a blackouts of electricity. So a nuclear energy is the cleanest energy. And I think, I, I, I can't think why we can't, have safe installations with nuclear energy. Well, we we totally right? can. And the thing is, you look at there's been three major reactor accidents in history. I'm sure yeah. there's been more, but these are the the major ones in in the public's eye and and probably in terms of like illness and death. So there was Three Mile Island in the U.S., which I think was in 1979. There was a Chernobyl, and yeah. there's Fukushima in yeah 2011. But all of these reactors used very kind of 
1940s or 1950s technology in building their yeah. reactors. And now mm -hmm. there's there the technology has advanced so much, but I mean, the U.S. doesn't build any nuclear reactors at all. There's no way to, you know, I, I think France powers itself completely with nuclear energy, but I don't know of too many other countries that do. Without going into all the technology, there's other elements yeah. we can use other than plutonium to create, yeah. you know, nuclear reactors. There's, right. there's thorium, which is easier to contain. There's they, they use mm -hmm. liquid salts instead of these very hot radioactive rods. So it's not as dangerous right now to build yeah. a nuclear reactor. So you're right. Like everybody talks about green energy. This is the greenest energy of all. It will completely exactly. eliminate the need for fossil fuels yeah. to generate electricity. Yeah. And yeah. you would only need a small amount to generate all the mm -hmm. electricity for a country for thousands yeah. of years. And and even and nuclear you waste you can reuse. depend on the weather or, you know, sunlight or anything, right? So you can, this is like, it goes on its own. It, you don't need to depend on solar or or wind or anything. Right now, and it won't always be this way, but right now, solar power and wind are too expensive. Like to generate, let's say, a mm -hmm. dollar's worth of electricity might cost, yeah. you know, a dollar fifty. I'm making these numbers up, but it's it's you have to the government has to subsidize solar power and, and yeah. energy. Now, yeah. that won't be the case forever. But like you said, nuclear reactors, there's no issue. Like it's clearly the best energy source. Yeah, nuclear fusion is on the horizon as well. But it's the law in the U.S. that no one's just building nuclear reactors and you're not allowed to reuse nuclear waste in in most cases so mm -hmm. which which is also a, a viable source of nuclear energy it's kind of a shame that you know such important technology as this and and considering the 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 problems that people see in in climate change and and man-made climate change and fossil fuels and all that here's a solution Nobody, yeah. they'd rather I like recycle a can of Coke, which does nothing, instead of advocating for nuclear reactors. And, and everybody, yeah. everybody who yeah. says is against climate change will, will also protest not in my backyard and for exactly. nuclear reactors. Exactly. I just don't get it. Like I, I got it in the 80s, but not today, right? So, yeah. I can understand why people are scared about it because, you know, things like Chernobyl is, was horrible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know yep. if anybody could live there even now. But I don't think so. No. Mm-hmm. But technology has improved so much and nobody really does does the research on this. Like you can build a nuclear reactor so much safer. And even with 70-year-old technology, there's only been really three, you know, massive events that I could think of. I mean, there's been other events, but those were massive yeah, absolutely. ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously there's tons of good prizes that have been offered for medicine, for physics, for chemistry. Mm -hmm. I think we were trying to pick the best ones and and we've talked about the the worst ones. I don't know if anything else stands out for my my favorite like top five i have two more and those are both in peace um and so one is to martin luther king jr ah, yeah. um which i think is an obvious one right and he won in 1964 and he's just and i think also also because he was such he was really inspired by mahatma gandhi gandhi didn't get it but dr king got the prize and i think that's sort of a and he was such a worthy winner, first of all, and in the same, you know, the same type of person as Gandhi, right? The same, you know, courage and, you know, non, you know, seeking peace through nonviolence and just peaceful means. And I think it's just everything that Alfred Nobel wanted with, with, his, with his, uh, his Peace Prize winners. So, so definitely uh, Martin Luther King and then Desmond Tutu. Oh yeah, you know, for his yeah, for his role in, and such a unifying leader figure um, in in South Africa, and for you know, uh, tearing down the apartheid going on. So and and also I think Desmond Tutu has um, in the you know the years following, he's continued to be he continues to be uh, an inspiration and a leader for peace, and he talks about you know, forgiveness and it talks about reconciliation. And it's something that I, that I think is, can I, can I, would you mind if I read a quote yeah. by him? Because he said, he said something, which I think is so valid, especially right now with everything going on, you know, with this pandemic. So he said this, he said, forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones are not about pretending that things are other than that they are. It's, it's not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. 
True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth, he said. And I think that's, I think it's valid today with, and he talks about this in the sense of we have to accept and we have to forgive, and then we have to, to try to love anyway, right? And I think, you know, with this polarization going on, if we can just try to meet each other and have a conversation and, and build relationships, right? Despite of our differences and despite of the fact that we totally disagree, right? And, and, and also the fact that like so many people don't know, like we don't know, we just want information. We just want to have leaders that we can look up to and that can inspire us. It's interesting you bring up Martin Luther King because during these Black Lives Matter protests, a lot yeah. of people were bringing up and misquoting a very crucial quote he said, including, uh, you know, one of my own uh, kids. And, and, you know, basically he'd written once, I think it was in 1957 or 58, uh, writing is the voice of the unheard. And people were using that quote to justify that the rioting during the Black Lives Matter movements was correct. And I'm not saying BLM activists were using yeah. it, but just like other people were using this quote that this was justifying mm -hmm. it. And, and, you know, yeah. police should stand down when the rioting is happening. But the reality is they, they're kind of taking his quote out of context. He does say yeah. rioting is the language of the unheard because he's trying to explain what America was not hearing from, you know, his his people and yeah uh and how you know the 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 plight of the poor has gotten worse and so on over, over the years and so he's he's basically saying America has failed to listen and that rioting has been the result but he is not justifying rioting he's still saying that a better approach to deal with these problems is is kind of this Gandhi like approach so uh, I think that's an important misconception recently of Martin Luther King. He yeah. was never for violence yeah. in any sense. Never. And and I, that was a big difference between him and Malcolm X. And even though Malcolm X yeah. changed to be more like Martin Luther King, uh, he still would have would advocate violence and self defense. Um, but but not he he wouldn't he no longer advocated like violence as a way of getting something done. Only, other than self-defense, but MLK, not even in self-defense, just, just like Gandhi. Exactly. It was all about the nonviolent resistance. That's what they talked about, both of them. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. So between physicists and doctors who and chemists who have changed their lives and uh, people advocating for peace who have changed uh, our, our lives, uh, I think we have got a good, uh, a good sense of I think this is the good side of the Nobel Prize is that it can yeah. it, it can reward and incentivize people to to do well and improve life and and it's it's created these people that we look up to for for inspiration mm -hmm. that maybe we would not have noticed before because we didn't do the work they did the work but yeah. of course as you point out in betraying the Nobel there's a lot of bad guys and bad actors who have come out of this as well and I wish they would kind of acknowledge that but maybe they can't. Maybe they can't, and and probably they can't, right? But what I do think, with with this year's prize to these uh, to these journalists and, and extremely, you know, like the, the courage that they show, and like we talked about, like I don't like I don't know if I have the courage to to go out there and do the same thing, right, and risk my life and and the, risk the, the the safety of my kids and my family, right? So. I think to acknowledge their uh, their courage and to continue and to, for all of us, it's an encouragement, right? For all of us to be a little more courageous and perhaps speak a little more up, you know, speak up when we feel that there's something, some injustice, something going on that we don't agree with, or just, you know, I think it's, it's today, um, disagreeing or raising questions in our society is a courageous act. Even in the U.S., which is striking. Even in the U.S., even in Norway, yep. Yeah, so... Which is striking, yep. And again, on the science side, there's probably a lot of Nobel Prize that were awarded for useless things or, or even worse, things like lobotomies. Uh, or there was another yeah. guy, um, Fritz Haber, who was awarded the Nobel Prize for chlorine gas and encouraged its use in gas warfare. So some of these guys are not... 
maybe they were smart, but maybe didn't necessarily improve the world at, at first glance. But I do think there's benefits and there's things we can learn from these, you know, in, incredible stories of people who who risked everything yeah. or or yeah. achieved a way of thinking that they could discover completely new things when everyone said mm -hmm. it wasn't possible. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure every scientist had to deal with the fact that it's not possible because no one's discovered it before. Or why did they discover it before? Or why would you discover it? So I'm sure they had to deal with their own personal issues. But certainly on the peace side, there was a lot of a great sacrificial risk involved for many of those winners. So Uni Turretini, author of Betraying the Nobel, a great book that someone should read to see the history of the, the Peace Prize and, and the good, the bad, and very much the ugly in mm -hmm. it. Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about who your, your favorites were in the Nobel Prize, because it's not, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. And thank you so much for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you.